0: Um, 2 Corinthians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church 2,000 years ago in Corinth and we learn a few things about their relationship through the letter and the other one he wrote, 1 Corinthians and the relationship between Paul and the Corinthian church was uh, let's say um, it didn't didn't all go go smoothly, it was a little bit rocky Um, I know some of you here are parents of teenagers everything okay with the sound, anything I can do to help that? I'll just stay where I am and not move too much so some of you here are parents with, of teenagers, and some of you are parents, and you've had teenagers in the past, and you're glad to be past that stage. And some of you are parents, and you're, you have just gone into their teenage years. Some of you might be parents, and your kids haven't started their teenage years yet. I'm in that group, so I've never parented a teenager, uh, but I've been a teenager, right? I think most of us in this building, with a few exceptions, have been a teenager at some point, so I know what it's like from the other side. And the relationship between parents and teenagers can be, it can be rocky, It can include tension, not always, but often. There's that those times in your life, those years you're going through, adolescent years, you're trying to find out your identity, working out who you are. You're trying to distance yourself in one way from your parents and get independence. At the same time, you're dependent on your parents; you're under their roof as well, and it can just lead to just sort of tensions and back and forth and suspicion and misunderstanding. And that's kind of like the relationship that the Apostle Paul had with the Corinthians. A bit like the relationship of a parent to a teenager. Last week, he described them as his children, children in the faith. And at the time Paul's writing to Corinthians, the relationship between them is at a point where they're kind of distant from him. They've kind of stepped back, they've pulled away from him. They're a little bit cool towards him, like often happens between a teenager and their parents. they have kind of maybe a a bit suspicious of him. And Paul's writing this letter to address them and some other issues. And the section we've been looking at, from chapter 3 through to the end of chapter 7, he's kind of defending his ministry to them. He's saying to the Corinthians, remember what it means to be a Christian. Remember how great it is, what a privilege it is. Paul describes it in terms that he calls the new covenant. Christians, when you become a Christian, you have your sins forgiven. You have a new heart. The Spirit of God comes to live in you. It's an amazing privilege. But he says, this, this memorable image, we're treasure in jars of clay. So we're jars of clay. God is the treasure within us. And then he says, my ministry looked like that. My ministry had a sort of treasuring jars of clay shaped to it. So I'm, I'm genuine. I'm, I'm the real thing, the real deal. You can trust me. And last week, Peter preached from the first half of 2 Corinthians 6. And he left us with an, an image. So Paul is saying to the Corinthians in that passage, open your hearts to me. I've opened my heart to you. He's kind of pleading with them. Don't be distant. Don't be cold. Don't be suspicious. Open your hearts. And Peter left us with an image. He said, just like Paul did to the Corinthians, God is opening his heart, has opened his heart to us in the person of Jesus on the cross. And the question he left us with was, what about you? Will you open your hearts to him? Will you be like the Corinthians were to Paul, closed, distant, or will you open your hearts to what God's doing? And I've been thinking about that um, question through the week. I've been thinking about, um, yeah, where where Peter left us. And I, I wonder if you have too. Maybe you've been thinking about that question too. Is, is my heart open to what God's doing in my life? And honestly, as, as I've thought about that, the answer has been, for me, not always. I have times in my own life when I feel, like the Corinthians did with Paul, I feel a bit distant from God. I feel like other things are a little bit more appealing to me, a bit more attractive to me than he is. I get distracted easily. I feel a little bit a bit cool, maybe, spiritually. A bit kind of lethargic I'm in a kind of spiritual, a bit spiritually sluggish. And maybe if you're a Christian here this afternoon, maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you know what I mean. Maybe you've had times as well where you feel a little bit distant from God, a little bit cool towards him, a little bit uh, spiritually sluggish. Anyone felt that way? I'm guessing if you're a Christian, you probably have at some point. And most people do. And it's not a great feeling, is it? If you've felt the other Extreme, the opposite, and you've had times in your Christian life where you feel alive, and you feel alert, you feel responsive to God, you feel uh, you're prayerful, you've got an appetite for His Word and books, and that's a great feeling. It feels like, oh, this is what I was made for. This is great. But because we know that's so good, when we experience the opposite and we're a bit lethargic, it's it's not good. It's not a good place to be. And today, the passage that we're looking at, Paul addresses what he's identified as the cause of that spiritual lethargy that spiritual distance in the Corinthians. Paul thinks he knows what's causing it in them he thinks he knows why they're holding back from him in their affections why they're a bit cool and he goes after it today so we're going to find out what that is and it's a great thing for us to hear as well because when we're spiritually distant, when we're a bit cool then there's a good chance that what Paul addresses here is also the cause for us So it's a really good thing for us to be listening to as as Christians this afternoon. This might be the cause of our spiritual distance. Just before we dive in, I want to say something if you're not a Christian, because I've just spoken to Christians so far. One of our goals, actually, in this church as we preach, is that our messages from the Bible will be relevant for Christians and non-Christians. That's what we strive towards. That's our goal. Every now and then, you come across a passage that you preach from that is kind of particularly directed to Christians in the Christian life, Um, Today is one of those passages, so it's particularly directed to Christians. But I do want to encourage you, if you're listening to this message online, if you're here in the building and you're not a Christian, you're just not sure, then please don't switch off. Please don't just think, oh, that's not relevant to me. Listen in to what Paul wanted to say to the Christians in Corinth. Listen in to what God wants to say to the Christians in Trinity Chippenham. Because actually what you'll find is there is a lot that's relevant for you too, even if you're not a Christian. So, if you've got a Bible, please turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to pick up at verse 14. And we could, you could basically summarize um, the cause that Paul identifies for the Corinthians distance from him with one word. And the word is compromise. Compromise. Let's read 2 Corinthians 6. If you've got a Bible or a phone. Um, turn there now 2 Corinthians 6 and we'll pick up from verse 14 do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness what accord has Christ with Belial or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever what agreement has the temple of God with idols for we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So Paul's identified this, he thinks this is the reason they're holding back from him in their hearts. It's compromise. He uses the word unequally yoked to describe their relationship with unbelievers. It's kind of an agricultural word. So a yoke um, was a plow that they used to, to plow the field and they would attach animals to this plow. And unequally yoked is referring to when you attach two different types of animal to the same plow, right? So in the Old Testament law, it forbids um, attaching a donkey and an ox to the same plow. What happens if you do that? It's kind of a mess, right? They're different sized animals. If you try and attach them to the same bit of wood to plow your field, the bit of wood gets broken, both the animals get hurt. It's kind of a mess. Damage. So Paul uses this term to describe the relationships the Corinthians are having with unbelievers. He says you're you're forming partnerships. You're associating with people who aren't Christians in ways that do you both damage in ways that do you damage. It's not a partnership of equals. So he says, don't do it. And he he doesn't give specifics here. So he doesn't give the specific uh, partnership, the type of thing the Corinthians were doing. Um, He just states a general principle, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And then he leaves them to draw the specific application themselves. He assumes they would know what he's talking about. There's lots of things he could be talking about. Um, From the context of the Corinthian church and what they were going through, um, from the clues that we get in this passage... Um, I think that he's referring to um, idols, going to temples to, to have associations with, with pagan idols. Now, that's not something we really deal with here, so it's a little bit hard for us to understand what, what was the deal there. Uh, we might think of sort of Id- idol temples over in the Far East somewhere, but it's not something we deal with. Um, but in, in those days, in, in Corinth at the time Paul was writing, uh, uh, the temples were kind of social hubs. So they were kind of our equivalent to like a shopping center or, or a pub, places that you would go to meet people. Well, in the old days, right? For the last year, the equivalent is probably online. <laughs> um, places you'd go to meet people to find out news, to, to find out what's happening, um, to, to, to share, to, to be part of the community, part of what's going on. So the temple was, was the kind of an essential place to be if you were part of the, the community. But the problem was for Christians, at these temples, there was an undercurrent, a kind of background music of something profoundly opposed to Christianity, the worship of idols, all kinds of uh, gods. And people would go to these temples and they would um, make sacrifices to these idols to try and get things, um, good health, fertility. And they would have meals with the, with the meat sacrificed to the idols. And the, the Corinthian Christians were going along to these, these temples and they were joining in with these meals. And Paul's saying, no, no, you can't do that. You can't associate in that way with with unbelievers, with the world, because you're, you're, you're condoning, you're buying into what they're doing, you're saying it's okay, and it's not. It's not okay. You need to be, be different from be separate, be distinct from what's going on in the world. It's, it's op- opposed to Christianity. And he gives these contrasts in this passage, five contrasts to sort of make the point of how incompatible the old life of the Corinthians with pagan worship is with their new life. He says... What what partnership does righteousness have with lawlessness? They don't go go together, these these five questions. The answer that's expected every time is none at all. What fellowship has light with darkness? None. What accord has Christ with Belial? Another word for for the devil, Satan. None at all. What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? He's making the point, the two don't mix. Light and darkness to take one example that's particularly vivid for us, don't mix, right? You can't have a light room and introduce a bit of darkness to that room and have the light stay the same, okay? The light gets diluted. When I go into my daughter's, I won't name which one, bedroom in the morning and open the curtains because she's still asleep and the light comes into the room, the darkness doesn't stay the same, right? You can't mix light and darkness. And when I go back into the room at the end of the day and I shut the curtains and I put the blackout blind down um, to make sure it's nice and dark for them to sleep, the light in the room doesn't stay the same when I've introduced darkness. The two don't mix. They're kind of opposite to each other, right? And Paul's saying it's the same with your old life and your new life. They don't mix. You can't, you can't have partnerships with, with unbelievers in this way. It just doesn't work. And he gives a reason for why it doesn't work, which is a little bit deeper than just they don't mix. There's a deeper reason, and he goes on to explain that. Chapter 6, verse 16. What agreement has the temple of God with idols for? We are the temple of the living God. Now this is really significant. There's a deep reason why Christians can't have these kind of partnerships with unbelievers because it's not just something outside, it's something inside. There's a difference within. Christians are the temple of the living God. And to try and understand that and get the weight of that, we need to do a little bit of background. We need to stand back a bit, take a step back, and look at the big picture of God's world, the big story of the world, to go right back to the beginning of the Bible. So right back at the beginning of the Bible, God creates humans. The reason God creates is because he wants to share his goodness and love with people. He wants people to share fellowship with him. And so he walks in the garden with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve turn away from him. And so God removes his presence so he's no longer sharing fellowship with the people that he made. And that grieves him. So the rest of the story of the Bible is God, God's intention, God's purpose to come back and dwell with his people. Now that should take us more by surprise than it does. Okay? We kind of take this for granted. But actually the fact that God wants to uh, dwell with his people, wants his presence to be with his people is remarkable. We shouldn't take that for granted. And the rest of the Bible is, is God doing that. So he saves people for himself. He, has the, uh, he sets up the laws for the people. At the center of the laws of the people of Israel is the tabernacle, this kind of tent-like structure where God's presence dwells, and it's surrounded by restrictions. You have to make sacrifices to go near. You can't ordinary people can't ordinary people can't go into the middle of the tabernacle. Eventually, tabernacles are replaced by temple, a kind of bricks-and-mortar version of the same thing. Again, uh, there's a sort of a whole set of restrictions around the tabernacle. You can't go. You can't go near it. you, you can't go inside. You've got to sacrifice things. So God's presence is with his people, but not in a sort of unrestricted way. Sinners can't come near. What you then have is Jesus appearing on the the scene, and he says something remarkable. He says, I am the temple of God. I am God dwelling with you. I am God's presence among you. Um, The Apostle John, when he writes his his Gospel of of Jesus, his biography, he, he says, the word became flesh and tabernacled, literally tabernacled among you. The presence of God is now with his people and it's not restricted. You don't have to sacrifice to come to Jesus because he is the sacrifice. You can come with all your sin and all of your mess. It's stunning. It's amazing. But what Paul's saying here is taking all of that background about the temple and the tabernacle and Jesus. He's taking it and he's taking it one step further. Okay, Jesus said, I am the temple. Paul says to Christians, you are the temple. He says, you are the temple of the living God because When you become a Christian, what happens? Your sins are forgiven, you're given a new heart, the Spirit comes to live within you. This is what we've been talking about, the new covenant. It's treasure within you, it's the presence of God. He's saying to the Corinthians, you are this temple, you are God's presence on earth. I mean, this is remarkable. It's it's something that we can't really ever fully get our heads around. If you're a Christian, here this afternoon, God lives in you. God has made his dwelling place, the God of heaven and earth has made his dwelling place in you. And when I, when I say that, I don't mean the kind of thing you hear from, say, New Age religion, which is everyone's got a bit of God in them. Every human being has got a little bit of God in them. That's not what Paul's saying here. That's not what the Bible says. It's something different to that. There is one true God. He is personal. He made the universe. He is good. And he comes to live by his spirit in every single Christian. It's, it's a stunning thing to say. It's stunning. And that's the deep reason why Christians must not live in a way that dilutes what's inside them. They must not live in a way that compromises what's inside them with the world. No compromise. Because you're the temple of the living God. Now for the Corinthians, that looked like not going to temples and joining in with their feasts and not eating meat sacrificed to idols. We don't have those same kind of issues in our culture now. We don't have to... uh, resist the temptation to go to an idol and eat, eat meat sacrificed to... Uh, go to a temple, sorry, and eat, eat, eat sort of defiled meat, um, does that mean that this doesn't apply to us? Does that mean that Christians today aren't ever tempted to form relationships, partnerships, have associations with the world in ways that compromise us? No, of course not. That's still very, very much a danger, a possibility today. In all kinds of areas... One of the main areas, I think, that this applies to us today is in the area of marriage. And this verse, 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14, is often used as a reason for Christians not marrying non-Christians, for good reason. I don't think Paul's necessarily got that in mind here. He might do. But the principle absolutely applies. The principle applies. Don't enter into relationships with the world in ways that might compromise the life that's inside you. The fact that you're the temple of God. The closest, almost the closest possible partnership I think you can have between humans on this earth is marriage. You join your life to someone. You unite together with another person. You're knit together. For better for worse, for richer for poorer, till death do us part. And being married, a Christian being married to a non-Christian is like attaching an ox and a donkey to a plow. It kind of doesn't work the way, at least not the way fields are meant to be plowed. Right? It causes, it just doesn't work. It causes damage. It's not really... A marriage the way that God meant marriage to be. It's it's it's, it's a difficult one, and I've heard lots of uh, Christians give justifications for entering relationships with non Christians or getting married to a non Christian, and to say things like, "Well, it's okay because they understand me, they they're supportive of my faith, they let me go to church, and they're they're fine with me praying and stuff." And and well, okay, great, but at some point, well, the whole time in marriage, you're making shared decisions about your time, about your money, about your, the way you parent your kids, about your priorities, and shared decisions by two people who are ultimately serving different masters, two people, one of whom is, is in the light and the other in the darkness, are always going to cause tension, always. So, look, maybe it's you. Maybe, maybe you're thinking about entering into a relationship with a non-Christian, you're thinking about marrying a non-Christian, and you're a Christian. I would just urge you, re- rethink, please reconsider. Think about it in light of what we're saying here. Um, it's, it's, it's not easy. It's not easy. And you could talk to any number of people who are married to someone who's not a Christian and they will share. It's not easy. Um, it's not easy. I want to be clear what Paul is not talking about here as well. He is not talking about the situation where there's an existing marriage between a Christian and a non-Christian. Okay? Okay? Paul recognises the complexities involved in that from both sides, from the Christian and the non-Christian side, and he actually addresses that elsewhere. If we had time, we could look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where he goes into that in detail, and he says there, if you're, if you're a Christian, you're married to a non-Christian, don't leave them. Stay with them. Honour the marriage. Love them. Stay in that marriage. That's really important to say. So if you're a Christian and you're married to a non-Christian, then it's not easy, but don't despair. There is grace. There is strength. There is, there is hope. Uh, God loves to bring good out of hard things. And there is, he, he loves to hear you when you call to him. He loves it. So, so don't, don't, uh, don't despair. Look to him. That's one area I think this applies. Um, be careful when entering intimate relationships with people who aren't Christians. It's not the only area. There are loads of ways that Christians can form associations, partnerships with people who aren't Christians, in ways that can compromise. Maybe you're at school, and there's just a, as a friend, and you've got a friend or a group of friends, and you just know that when you spend time with them, they have an influence over you that is not a good influence. And it's, it's hard for you to be in that friendship and, and stay close to God and not feel a little bit distant from him. Maybe you're in a business partnership with someone, and, you've got, and they're not a Christian, and you've got different values, and there's just situations you come up against. And you know that in order to make that business work, you have to hold your own Christian values loosely. And you can't kind of walk in the light as you're doing that. Maybe you've got a group of friends that you go out with, and when you go out with them, there's a a group of mates, and you just know that you're not the same person. And you're not the same person as you are when you're at church. And that person that you are is kind of spiritually cool, just spiritually distant. And the reason is really, it's compromise. There's all kinds of possibilities that ways this can work out in our, our lives. And some of you at this point, I'm anticipating, might start to be questioning what I'm saying. The question might come up in your minds. But Andy, what about the Christian teaching that we're meant to be engaged with the world? What about the Christian teaching that we're meant to be uh, salt and light, right? Jesus says that. You're the salt of the earth, you're the light of the world. Be involved in the world, be engaged in the world so you can share the good news of Jesus and to that I would say absolutely yes and Paul is not saying here he's not saying separate completely from the world actually he kind of addresses that again in 1 Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 5 he's addressing a specific situation in the church where there's a Christian who is um, engaged in sexual immorality and he's talking about church discipline he says separate from that Christian and then he says I'm not talking about the sexually immoral of the world because if you, if you separated from there, you'd have to leave the world. And the point he's making is, I'm not saying you have to leave the world, right? So he's saying, don't, don't separate. That's not what I'm saying here. There's another bit later on in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 where he's talking to Christians and he says, you might be invited to an unbeliever's house for food. If you want to go, then go. Right? He says that in 1 Corinthians 10. So he's assuming these kind of interactions happen and he's saying, that's totally fine. So he's not saying separate completely. He's not saying become a monk and just withdraw from society. Okay, what he is saying is, as you live in society, as you engage with the world, then stay pure. Be distinct. Don't compromise. Right? Remember that you're the light. So I would say, absolutely, get stuck in. Go and spend time with, if you're a Christian here, go and spend time with non Christians. Find out what your shared interests are with people who don't know Jesus and and get stuck in. Spend time with those people. Be involved in the world. Engage with the world. Be salt. Be light. But as you're in the world, be salt and be light, right? Don't compromise. Don't dilute what you've got. The reason is because what we've got is so good, right? The new covenant is so good. It's treasure. It's in jars of clay, but it's treasure. So don't dilute it, he says. Maybe you're sitting here and you're not a Christian or you're listening and or you're just not sure, you're kind of looking in and you're hearing me talk and you're saying, this all sounds a little bit arrogant, to be honest. It sounds like a bit superior. Like you're saying, distance yourself from people in the world and don't go near them because we're better than them. They're sort of, they're down there and we're up here. I want to say, nothing could be further from the truth. That is not how Christians see themselves, believe me. Um, and actually, what I would say to that is, if you're not a Christian, you need Christians to be living this out. You need Christians to be living lives that are uncompromised and undiluted. It's what you need, it's what the world needs actually. It's what the world needs most. For the last sort of hundred years or so, there's been an increase in interest in wine storage. Okay? A whole load of industries have sprung up around the storage of, of high-quality wine. And I was looking into this a bit this week. It's kind of mind-boggling when you get into it. The number of things you have to do to store wine well. And I realized, oh, that's why my wine doesn't turn out very good when I get back to it after a year. Apparently, you have to keep it at the right temperature. Okay, So if you, if you store wine, it can't go over 20 degrees, otherwise it kind of heats it and it, it loses the flavor. It can't go below freezing. It can't change temperature too much, otherwise it def- destroys the flavor. You've got to keep it at the right humidity. Um, it can't get too dry, otherwise if the cork gets dry, apparently oxygen can get in and it spores the flavor of the wine. And you've got to keep it in the right um, amount of light, it can't get, be in sunlight, because if it, it, wine's exposed to sunlight, then it, it damages it. Um, it's even, it can't be uh, uh, vibrated. So if you put your wine on top of your fridge, right, that's, that's a no-no, because if you're storing it anyway, to, to sort of improve it, because it, it sort of uh, damages the sediment and the, the way that it ages, the aging process. Um, there's all kinds of, kind of rules that you're, you're meant to, to do around ageing wine because wine is one of the few commodities, one of the few um, thing, consumables that improves with age. So apparently the best place to store wine is in a north-facing cellar that's a bit damp and a bit dark. Okay? And most people don't live in a kind of home that has a north-facing cellar. So all kinds of industry, industries have sprung up to help people build wine cellars, wine caves. You can buy wine fridges, that store at the right temperature between 10 and 15 degrees. Um, You can can even, like, put your wine into storage, out-of-town storage, especially reserved. Why? Why all this focus on making sure expensive bottles of wine are kept in in the right conditions? Because the contents of those bottles are valuable. Okay, a high-end bottle of wine can be sold for thousands of pounds, literally thousands of pounds. The most expensive, I don't know, hundreds of thousands the most expensive bottle of wine ever sold. The reason is, what's inside is valuable. And we don't want that to be diluted. You don't want oxygen to get in and damage the flavor. Same for Christians. What's inside a believer is far more valuable than the highest top-end wine you can imagine. It's the presence of God, the living God, who wants to enter your life and enter the lives of those around you to transform them from the inside out. Far more valuable. And that's why... That's why it's important that Christians don't dilute what they have, don't compromise, because it's so precious. It's so precious. And that's why it's in the interest of everyone to make sure that wine stays pure, because otherwise Christians don't have anything to offer to the world. We don't have anything to give if what we have within us is diluted. So everyone needs Christians to be uncompromised because otherwise we have nothing to offer. But the wine image, I think, is helpful for Christians as well. A helpful motivation to think, well, why shouldn't we compromise then? Why should we keep this distance? Why should we make sure that we're, we're not uh, being diluted? The motivation for staying pure is the goodness of the treasure. It's the goodness of the treasure. And that's what Paul goes after in his, in his um, address to the Corinthians. Have a look at chapter 7, verse 1. Paul finishes this passage, he says, Since then we have these promises, beloved. Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Paul says, since we have these promises, let us cleanse ourselves. He doesn't say, since we have these commands, let us cleanse ourselves. He says, since we have these promises. What promises is he talking about? He's just, he just quoted um, three verses from the Old Testament. And the promises are right there. God says, I will make my dwelling among them. Look at how many times the words I will come up in those quotations from the Old Testament. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you. God promises his presence. I'm going to dwell. God promises belonging. I'm going to be your God. God promises welcome. I'll welcome you. God promises, he promises fatherhood. You'll be my sons and daughters. These are the promises of God in the new covenant that we've been thinking about. Promises that are held in jars of clay. Sure, we're nothing impressive to look at, but we have within us these promises of God to come and dwell and be with us. And, and that, is a, that is so good. It's, it's, it's so precious, more precious than the most valuable wine you could ever imagine. And that's the motivation to stay pure. And if you're not a Christian, consider those promises. They, may not, they might not be for you, but consider them An invitation. God says, when you come out, when you come out of the world, I will welcome you. I will be a father to you. Consider that an invitation. You're invited. You're invited to taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and drink deeply of the goodness of his his promises. But Paul says, since then, we have these promises. Let us cleanse ourselves. Let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. And actually, that that, that phrase body and spirit is a helpful kind of framework to think through in our own lives. What might be defiling us? What, might, what areas might we be compromising? Body and spirit refers to the whole person, outside and inside. So maybe this is a good time to ask yourself the question, for all of us to ask ourselves the question. Is there anything that I'm doing, body or spirit, that is defiling me or causing me to be distant from God? Anything I'm putting into my body, anything I'm doing with my body that is causing me to be compromised? Is there any place I'm going, any people I'm spending time with, anything I'm watching, anything I'm listening to, anything I'm looking at, that is causing me to be compromised, that is diluting, that is, that is making impure the treasure that's within me? Is there anything in, in your life? It's easy, I think, to, look at, to think about other people when these questions get asked, but I think it's good for us as we come to, to God's word to ask ourselves the questions. What is there in my life that might be causing me to, to compromise? And I think with Paul, God is, God is urging us. He's saying, he's saying, don't go there. Pull back. Be light. Be in the world. But as soon as you sense as soon as you sense that your spirit is hardening to him your spirit is going distant from him because of something in your life you're getting cold you're getting distant you're getting spiritually lethargic you're just not very responsive you're losing that sense of alertness and watchfulness and prayerfulness if there's anything that's causing that in your life God's saying through Paul just just pull back just don't do it don't compromise what we have is too good and the world needs it the world needs us to be sharing the good stuff the full draft he doesn't need Dirty, compromised, defiled religion. The world needs the best. And we need the best. And what's more, we get to enjoy the best. Okay, this is an encouragement for us. Actually, what we have in this jar of clay, in this body of clay, what I have is the, the best treasure imaginable. The living God who loves me and gave himself for me. The God who showers his mercies on me and who loves to welcome me, who invites me to be his child, who loves me as his father. That's the treasure that we have. That's the treasure that we have to offer to the world. That's the treasure that when we, when we enjoy it and when we taste of it, we'll know that spiritual alertness. We'll know that the, the, the spiritual uh, sluggishness, the coldness, the distance um, is going to be warded away. So let's, let's take some time. Let's take some time to just think about these things. I know that there's lots that's brought up with these kind of uh, messages. Um, it's good to be challenged. It's good to be encouraged. It's good to look to God's promises. Let's take a few moments. And and I'll pray and the band will come up and we'll sing a few more songs.